Sure, you're aware the New Testament tells us that we're to rejoice at all times. Yeah, I bet you find, as I do, that sometimes it seems farcical to rejoice. Because life is full of tensions and problems and hassles. And oftentimes the daily drudgery of our existence doesn't feel like it's enriched with the blessings of a good and gracious God. And moreover, when we look around, at times it looks like the wicked are the ones that are prospering. And they're the ones that are happy. And here we are drudging along on our paths of righteousness, being miserable and leading dull lives. I'm sure that all of us feel that way from time to time. It's very natural. This morning we want to look at Psalm 92, which corrects that type of mentality. Let's us know that such mentality is not the case tells us that we can indeed rejoice at all times and thank God even though it it may appear on the surface like it is the wicked who prosper and not us. This psalm begins saying a psalm, a song for the Sabbath day. It's very appropriate for the Sabbath day because it's a psalm of praise to God. The Sabbath was a special day set aside during the Old Testament period for the worship of God, for his praise. Now, in the New Testament era that we live in, we are not commanded to keep a certain day as a Sabbath. But it still is good for us to praise God, not just on one day, but on seven days a week. The psalm is divided into uh, three paragraphs. The first paragraph in verses 1 to 4 tell us that it's good to thank and praise God. In verses 5 to 9, we're told that God is in control, though it may appear that the ungodly do prosper. And verses 10 to 15, we're told that it's the righteous who are the ones who really do prosper and experience the blessings of God. Let's look at these paragraphs one at a time. First of all, verses 1 to 4. It is good to give thanks to the Lord and to sing praises to thy name, O Most High to declare thy loving kindness in the morning and thy faithfulness by night with a ten-stringed lute and with the harp, with resounding music upon the lyre. For thou, O Lord, hast made me glad by what thou hast done. I will sing for joy at the works of thy hands. The psalmist starts out by saying, it is good to give thanks to the Lord. But in what way is it good to give thanks to God? Well, it's good in a couple of ways. First of all, it's good because it's right. It's fitting and proper because of all that he does for us. And he appreciates it. Scripture tells us that our actions and attitudes can grieve God or they can uh, make him glad. But secondly, it's also good to give thanks to God because of what it does to us. It's good for us to do that. I'm sure we've all seen children who are spoiled and children who are not, who are appreciative. The one child who's appreciative has learned to uh, express thanks and appreciate all the treats and, and favors and special things and the blessings of life, both small and large. But the one who is spoiled never gets enough. Nothing is really appreciated for more than a minute because he always wants more, and he never has enough to satisfy. 
And as a result, he's unhappy. The same is true with us. To the extent that we are able to appreciate what God gives us and express thanks to him, then we can learn to be satisfied by what he brings our way. And we can learn to be happy. But if we're spoiled, we never thank God for anything. Then we're like the spoiled child who never has enough. He's always griping and complaining because things are just not right. I shouldn't have to put up with this. I should have more. Things shouldn't go this way for me. People shouldn't treat me this way. And so we, too, are never happy. Psalmist says it's good to give thanks to God. It's good because it does us a world of good. And it changes our perspective. I've found that to be the case in my own life. When I give thanks to God, then I have to refocus my attention away from the problems and see behind them all that he does that's good for me. I have to acknowledge when I'm giving thanks that God is sovereign, that he's in control, and that he is bringing about good even though the circumstances I'm in might not be those I would have chosen for myself. So giving good is giving thanks is good for me because it changes me. And it helps me have a right perspective on life and recognize God's hand in everything. The psalmist also says in the first verse that it's good to sing praises to God. And one thing that's always somewhat disappointing for me is to look out in the congregation and see that certain people never sing. Now, it's not disappointing in that you uh, fail to meet my expectations and I want a full participation so that we can get a uh, 100% ribbon for our church. But I'm disappointed for you because just as it's good for us to give thanks and to say thank you to God, it's also good for us to sing his praises. And when you fail to sing, you rob yourself of a blessing. Now, I realize that some of you can't carry a tune and that you feel self-conscious singing. But I think it's not without point that the New Testament says the important thing is, is to sing to God with your heart. Even if you can't carry a tune, you can sing with gusto to him. And singing to him does the same sort of thing as giving thanks. That, too, if done from the heart helps us and changes our perspective. Then in verse 2, we're told the frequency of such activity. He says, It's good to give thanks and to sing praises, to declare thy loving kindness in the morning and thy faithfulness by night. Now, he's not saying that it's, it's good if you can do this twice a day, once in the morning and once in the night, and that's all. But rather, he's using a figure of speech that's common to us. We say that at a large meeting, the Young and the old were there, the rich and the poor. By saying that, we don't mean that there were no middle-aged, middle-class people. We just mean that everybody was there, the whole spectrum of society. The same way the psalmist is saying, at all times, covering the whole spectrum, in the morning, in the evening, it's good to thank God and praise his name. At all times. Now, I've been looking at this psalm for a few weeks in preparation for this morning, and during that time, I've been trying to think of these, uh, of the meaning of these two verses, these first two verses in particular, for myself. And I find, found for myself that as I try to make my prayers more thanksgiving and praise and less gimme-gimme, 
And as I try to sing God's praise through the day more, it really does affect me. Uh, a couple weeks ago, and I pinned the words to those, the song that we wrote, it was during the shower, I was trying to, to uh, express thanks and praise to God because I, I realized that it does help me. A couple of nights ago, I was in the kitchen cleaning up the dishes. I was feeling kind of tired. I was worn out at the end of the day. I wasn't depressed or despondent, but I was kind of dull. Uh, not, not what you would call exuberant about life or God. And my son was uh, putting away the silverware, the clean silverware. And he turned and said, Daddy, can we sing, Oh, How I Love Jesus? So I said, Sure. And so we sang it. And as is the case with a three-year-old, you don't just do something once. We sang it over and over and over. <laughs> and I found that as I expressed my love to the Lord Jesus, that it really did affect me. It lifted up my spirits and it changed me. Because you can't sing, oh, how I love Jesus, and be grumpy. Uh, you realize that to do so, you've got to be a first-class hypocrite. And I didn't want to do that. And so I, I found that it really did change me. But it wasn't just an emotional experience of a moment. As soon as we stopped singing, I didn't get grumpy again. But I found that it, it had an effect on me all throughout the rest of that evening. Because by singing his praises and expressing my love for him, it focused my attention on him. And it lifted me up emotionally and stirred me and encouraged me in the way of faith and joy and godly living and righteousness. It's because of these things that the psalmist says to us, it's good to give thanks to the Lord. It's good to sing praises to his name. Morning and evening, all day long. It's a good thing and, and you and I will benefit if we will learn to do that more fully. In verse 3, he says, the, uh, it's good to use all the instruments we can find. Ten-string ten lute, the harp, the lyre. Of course, if you read the other psalms, you, you, you find drums and cymbals and all sorts of things that we would probably be shocked at in our uh, worship service being used there in the temple. But he says, pull out the stops and use anything you have to praise the Lord. And direct your thoughts to him. Sing praises to his name. And then in verse 4, he says why he wants to give thanks to God. For thou, O Lord, hast made me glad by what thou hast done. I will sing for joy at the works of thy hands. In his commentary in the psalm, Derek Kidner at this point suggests that we are made glad by God's work to the extent that we direct our minds and use our voices to express thanks and praise for what he's done. And I think he's right. So I think we can affect how thankful we are as we direct our minds and focus them on God and what he's done. Your focus determines a great deal your attitude. Let me give you an illustration. Picture a child who comes down stairs into the, into the living room on Christmas morning. And there in front of him are some of his old toys. And his little brother has beaten him down there and is uh, tearing apart his books and breaking all these old toys. And he has the books with the covers torn off and a little wind-up car. And the wind-up mechanism has been broken already. He has a plastic baseball bat that the brother is beating on the ground and it's broken in two. And there's his old baseball mitt with the laces. He's, he's pulling all the laces out. And he sees all this 
and breaks into tears and is grieved over over what he's losing. But he doesn't even realize, he doesn't look past and see that right beyond is the Christmas tree. And under that Christmas tree are all sorts of gifts. The new books that he's been wanting to replace the old books he's tired of. To replace the wind-up car, there's a racetrack with several cars that go around at top speed and, and thrill dad. There's a, <laughs> there's a wooden baseball bat and a new baseball mitt to replace these old things. But because his focus is in the wrong place, he just looks and sees all these old toys that are being destroyed, the ones he didn't really want anyway. Aren't we like that? We focus on the immediate things before our eyes, on the problems And therefore, we're led into despondency and self-pity over all the horrible things that are happening to us. And we fail to look beyond, to see God and all of the good gifts that he is giving us. But our focus determines our attitude. And to the extent that we're able to look and to see God's works, to that extent, we are able to have our hearts made glad in the midst of even all sorts of trying and unwanted circumstances within life. Well, one way that we can lose this perspective, though, the perspective that God is doing good things, is when we start to judge life superficially. We look around us and see that that here are ungodly people, friends at work who profess no belief in God or not trying to be righteous at all and they're surpassing us and they seem to be happy. And so in the next paragraph, verses 5 to 9, the the psalmist reminds us that though the wicked prosper, it's only for a moment and God is is the one in control. How great are thy works, O Lord! Thy thoughts are very deep. A senseless man has no knowledge, nor does a stupid man understand this. That when the wicked sprouted up like grass and all who did iniquity flourished, it was only that they might be destroyed forevermore. But thou, O Lord, art on high forever. For behold thine enemies, O Lord, for behold thine enemies will perish. All who do iniquity will be scattered. The psalmist praises God because his works are great and his thoughts are very deep, vast and beyond our normal understanding. And then in verse 6, he talks about a man who is senseless and stupid. Now, he's not talking about a man who is uneducated or who has a low IQ. The word senseless uh, means literally one who is brutish, one who is animal-like, and that he's striving to satisfy all of his animalistic desires and gratify himself, though he may be one who is very intelligent and well-educated. The one who is senseless, Uh, This word is uh, the uh, same word translated fool in the book of Proverbs. You know from studying the book of Proverbs that the fool is a fool in that he doesn't love wisdom. He's not seeking after the wisdom of God. When he's rebuked by somebody, he defends himself. He strikes the man back because he doesn't want to be corrected. He doesn't want wisdom. He doesn't want the right path for life. He just wants his, his temporary comforts and pleasures. And he says in verse 7, the thing that the uh, brutish fool does not understand, namely, 
that when that when the wicked sprouted up like grass, they uh, and all who did iniquity flourished. It was only that they might be destroyed forevermore. Sure, the wicked prosper, but only for a moment. He says they're like a weed, like grass that sprouts up. And he's not thinking about a modern society in which we have sprinkler systems in our yards. But he's thinking of Israel. And when the, uh, as a result of the rainy season, the grass, the weeds would sprout up. But when summer came and there was no more rain for months, it wouldn't take long for these weeds to dry up and wither and die. He said the wicked are the same way. And part of what he's warning us against is, is having the superficial, faulty perspective that we think that the unrighteous really do prosper. They really do get away with it. And we might be enticed by the world's uh, ways. We might hearken to the voice of the world that beckons to us. If, you're, if you've got a bad marriage and you're unhappy, we'll divorce the bum. Don't try to work things out and go through all that hassle. Grab somebody that's going to make you happy. Don't try to stick it out and make it work. Or if you're not succeeding in business, step on somebody's toes. Make sure that the boss thinks that somebody else did all of your mistakes. Use a little deceit on your customers. You need to get ahead. After all, everybody else does these things. Or if you're bored in life, then indulge yourself. Pursue to the utmost materialistic pleasures and sensual delights. Don't worry about other people. Don't give any of your time or money away to others. But indulge yourself. Go get high. Get drunk. Buy all the toys and gadgets that money can afford. Pursue all the hobbies you can without limit. Don't worry about other people. And in other ways, the world beckons to us. It says, pursue after these ways and you will be happy like we are. But the psalmist reminds us, the brutish man, the fool, does not realize that though the wicked prosper, it's only for a moment. It will not last. And therefore he warns us against following uh, following after the world in its pursuit of happiness, though we might be tempted to do so. As we lose the correct perspective, then we think it's not worth it to be righteous. It's not worth it to follow God. I want to be happy like my neighbor and say no to sacrifice and love and service. I want to indulge myself. He says, though the wicked might be high for a moment. Verse 9, in contrast, but thou, O Lord, art on high forevermore. The, The ungodly might get away with it for a moment, but only for a moment. But God is on high forever. As a result, he says in verse 9, your enemies will perish. All who do iniquity will be scattered. In other words, justice and truth will prevail. Maybe not immediately, but they will prevail soon enough. And therefore, don't be a dumb, brute fool and think that the world's way The way of unrighteousness is the way to true happiness and satisfaction because it won't last. In verses 10 to 15, he says, righteousness is the way to real satisfaction in life because the righteous man is the one that God blesses. 
But thou hast exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. I have been anointed with fresh oil, and my eye has looked exultantly upon my foes. My ears hear of the evildoers who rise up against me. The righteous man will flourish like the palm tree. He will grow a cedar in Lebanon, planted in the house of the Lord. They will flourish in the courts of our God. They will still yield fruit in old age. They shall be full of sap and very green. To declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. Though the, the righteous have problems, nevertheless they experience the, uh, the rich blessings of God. In verse 10 he expresses this in two different ways. First he says that God has exalted his horn like that of the wild ox. The wild ox was proverbially the uh, uh, strongest of animals in Palestine. And exalting the horn is a picture from the animal kingdom. It evokes the image of, a, of an animal that has conquered a, a, an opponent. We might picture a, a huge elk who has defended himself and his uh, harem against the uh, encroachments of a, uh, of a young bull. And after winning the battle, he's holding his head up with his antlers showing in the sky. His horns are exalted, so to speak. And that's the image. He says, though the wicked might appear to prosper, I'm the one who has the true victory. God has exalted my horn like the horn of the wild ox. Not only has he given me victory externally, but also he has refreshed me internally. He says, I've been anointed with fresh oil. In a hot, dry climate, like we find in Palestine, you don't have a, an excessive amount of water to... Uh, bathe with, so baths are infrequent. You may not drink all the time because you don't have tap water uh, always available. Your skin dries out in the hot climate, and therefore oil would be used to refresh you, and it would cool and soothe uh, the chapped skin and refresh you. The psalmist is saying in a similar way, God has refreshed me, though I may get parched by life, and I may feel dried up, and scaly. Nevertheless, God refreshes me. He gives me joy and exuberance about life by his spirit's work within me. And my spirit is uplifted. In verse 11, he says that though I may have problems, as we see by the fact that he has foes, nevertheless, I'm confident I'm confident because I see them, I hear them, I know what they're doing, and they cannot prevail against me. That's the implication. Oh, it's true, we may have enemies and they may rob our possessions, they may kill our bodies, but they can't really prevail against us because they can't take from us that which is most important, our relationship with God and all of the blessings that he gives us. And therefore, we can always face the future confidently in spite of our external circumstances. He says in verse 12, the righteous man will flourish like the palm tree. He will grow a cedar in Lebanon. The palm tree was tall and slender and represents grace. The cedar was strong and firm, represents strength and power. And notice that if you have a, a marginal note in your New American Standard, it says the righteous will sprout like the palm tree. It's the same word that's used in verse 7, the wicked sprouted up like grass. He 
He's making a deliberate contrast. The wicked sprout up and they flourish, but only like grass, which burns out when the sun gets too hot. But the righteous instead, in contrast to that, will be like a strong tree, which grows and grows for years. It's not burnt out by the hot sun. In verse 13, he tells us the secret to this righteousness whereby we are blessed of God. Planted in the house of the Lord, they will flourish in the courts of our God. He's not talking here about a casual relationship with God. He isn't say planted on the outskirts of Jerusalem, the righteous flourish, but planted in the very courts of God, the courts of the temple and the house of the of God. Now, we know that in the New Testament era, the, the church building is not the temple. This is not the house of God. The house of God is here inside each of us. But what he's talking about is not coming to a building uh, particularly, but he's talking about a closeness of relationship with God. When we have that close relationship whereby we look upon him as a constant companion and pray at all times, communicate with him about all of our lives' problems and all of our, our blessings. When we study the scriptures and learn what he has to say to us. When we live life with that awareness of his presence at every moment, drawing upon his resources for all of our needs, we walk closely to him and have a close relationship. Then we're like this righteous man who is blessed by God like a tree growing in the very courtyard of the temple. In verse 14, he says, this, these who are the righteous will be like trees who still yield fruit in old age. They shall be full of sap and very green. I think a lot of us are full of sap anyway. But the picture here is, is of continued fruitfulness. In California, when we moved into our house there, we noticed that we had a, a large apricot tree in our backyard. And we, our mouths started watering, thinking about all the apricots we we're going to get from that tree. Well, the first year, we got about 15 apricots. So we thought, well, something is wrong. So we pruned it, and we sprayed it, and we fertilized it, and we watered it. And next year, we got about 13. And we couldn't quite understand, because our neighbor behind us had this scrawny little tree, and he got bushels of apricots. And we inquired and find, found out that the problem was ours was just too old. It was past its... It's a bearing age. But he says here that the, that the righteous will not be like that apricot tree that's gotten too old. In other words, you won't go through, your life with God is not just a passing phase. You won't get to a point at which God doesn't work anymore. It won't just be a temporary thing. and You'll have to go on to some other trip after that. But rather, if you live in close communion with God, as he's describing and you will be one who is blessed continuously. You won't wear out even in old age. He says in verse 15 that they're, they're full of sap and very green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. God is a rock. He's able to be a, a, a point of stability and strength for us. And he is that because there's no unrighteousness in him. Now, all of us, I think, have a little bit of a fear in our hearts. If I give myself fully to God, 
and do things his way, well, maybe somebody's going to step on my toes. Maybe he won't really watch out for me. Maybe he'll promise all sorts of good things to me, but he'll let me down and won't come through. The psalmist is saying, no, God is a rock. and He's able to be such because there's no unrighteousness within him. He won't play games with us. I know of one man who keeps God at, at a distance. Because he says, if I let God get too close, he'll make me go be a missionary in Africa. And I'd be miserable. And so he keeps God at, at arm's length. But the psalmist is saying, you don't have to do that. You don't have to, to keep God away. You can entrust your life to him because he is completely righteous. He won't play games with you. Or there's a, a young couple who says, I want to be involved. I want to, we want to find out our gifts and be involved in ministry, but we're afraid if we really do that, then we won't have time for the camping and the skiing and all the fun activities we really want to do. In other words, I might regret it. I might miss out on some of the fun and zest of life if I do that. Or there's the woman I talked to who was divorced. Her husband was... She divorced him because he uh, was not meeting her needs. He was showing signs of straightening up and wanted to be reconciled, but she said, but I have a boyfriend now, and he loves me a lot better than my husband did. Surely I should grab a hold of whatever I can get for sure, rather than going back to him and not knowing what would happen. But God in his word says, no, don't divorce for that reason. And if you do, be reconciled to that person. And trust me, it seems foolish to the world. The world says, no, follow the path of unrighteousness. Look out for yourself. But God says, no, you can trust me. You need not fear. I will be a rock to you upon which you can depend fully. I won't play games with you. I won't ridicule you. I won't make you regret it. Where's the man who reads in the New Testament that he should... Love his wife like Christ loved the church, sacrificially. He says, well, if I make Christ Lord and I start to, have to do that, then I might have to limit myself and my independence and my activities. And I can't just run off and leave home all the time and, and go hunting and fishing and camping and dirt biking and play in the church basketball league and do all these other things I want to do all the time. Besides, if I let my buddies know that my wife's desires are dictating my activities, they might think I'm a wimp. I can't let a woman push me around. And so he's afraid. I can't make God Lord. I can't give up my own self and my own desires. I might not be happy. I might regret it. But the psalmist tells us, no, God is a rock. And he is such because he is completely Righteous. There's no unrighteousness in him. He can be trusted completely. You can give your life to him. You can follow his way of living and you won't regret it. You'll be like the tree, the palm, the cedar that's fruitful and that flourishes. Or you can be like the fool who says, I want the temporary prosperity of the wicked. I want to be like the grass that maybe grows a little bit quicker than the tree. And if it gets burnt out tomorrow, well, that's too bad. I'll grab what I can get for myself right now. The psalmist tells us no. 
if we judge life properly, we realize, as he says in verse 5, how great are thy works, O Lord, thy thoughts are very deep. His ways are beyond our normal ways of, of thinking or doing. And as we gain this perspective and realize it is the righteous who are blessed by God, then we can come back to the point at which we can praise God and thank him for all things and at all times. And that's the aim of the psalmist. He says it's good to give thanks to the Lord. It's good to sing praises to his name. He is to be trusted. He is faithful. We can give ourselves fully to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a rock. There is no unrighteousness in you. Thank you that we have the confidence that we can entrust our lives to you fully, without reservation. We can live life according to your principles, according to the instruction of your scripture. We can serve others and know that we will not be giving up our own fulfillment. Lord, it's hard for us to believe at times, but we thank you that we can because you are trustworthy. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.